This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Folding Pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, rabbit holies. Hi, Kat. Hello, Kat. So, have we had a busy week, everyone, again, since last time? Oh, I'm on tour. Yes. Still. Yes. yes. Been... How many venues are you playing? 40. Cool. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And so, sold out. I've seen, I've seen your billboard. It looks very sold well, out. Well, it is sold out. Well, pretty much, it was sold out most places. So a few tickets left, but one place has proved incredibly resistant to my charms. And this is Hayes in Middlesex, where we sold 20%. Still a way to go yet, so maybe we can draw. I just don't know why. I can't think I've said anything to a friend. <laughs> I just think I might be up against Psychic Sally or Bobby Crush or someone. It's all day. about the competition. I remember once talking at the Hay Literary Festival, flying back from New York, especially for it, very excited, and I was up against Jane Fonda. <laughs> and nobody came to me at all. It was sort of tumbleweed going through my marquee where she was full to the rafters. Be rafters. a vicar, because you will never ever, be, never ever be upset by a small audience ever if you're a vicar. <laughs> so many things I've done with it was like one person. <laughs> but we are back again. Have you all done your homework? I can still not see any notes, Richard. Well, my topic is so vivid that once you've come across it, you wouldn't need a note, actually. Yeah, I think we need to go straight because you just gave a sort of teaser last week. Mm. And I was very tempted to go down, you know, my internet rabbit holes and find out all about it myself. But I thought I'd wait. The Panacea Society. Yes. Yes. Drive me as we <laughs> drive with me, if you will, from yes. town up towards Kettering along the A6. And you will pass through the county town of Bedford. In Bedfordshire. Now, in Bedford, just after the war, there was a lady called, a widow, called Mabel Baltrop. She had been married to a clergyman who died, and at the end of the First World War in 1919, I think it was, she started the Panacea Society, because Mabel Baltrop changed her name to Octavia, because she believed she was the eighth incarnation of a prophet... And she also believed that she was Shiloh, which was the Messiah predicted by the prophecies of Joanna Southcote. Do you know who I mean? No. no. Well, Joanna Southcote was a prophetess in Devon in the 18th century, famous for her box, Joanna Southcote's box, in which she placed prophecies that were to be of enormous import for the well-being of the realm of England and its associated realms and territories, which was sealed and could only be opened in very particular circumstances, but the prophecies therein would be absolutely what we needed to hear in our national time 
of need. Now, the box was kind of looked after by people, but Mabel Bultrup was rather inspired by this. And so she decided not only, she changed her name to Octavia to be the eighth incarnation of the prophet, and also to Shiloh, that she was indeed the Messiah. But she believed that Bedford was the original site of the Garden of Eden. And she believed this because Selfridge's opened a shop there um, just after the First World War, which she thought made Bedford such a splendid place to live. And it made perfect (laughs) sense to her that it was the site of the original Garden of Eden. So she lived at 12 Albany Road, which she thought was actually on the site of the very centre of the Garden of Eden. But unfortunately, she couldn't get to Selfridges because if she advanced more than 77 steps from 12 Albany Road, she would be taken by Satan. So she needed to gather disciples to herself. And strangely enough, she did. And she formed the Panacea Society. And it was a society of women, mostly like her, middle class women, women of the lower gentry, perhaps women of independent means who gathered and they lived a life in common preparing for the return, the second coming of our saviour. But then it got a bit complicated because Mabel thought that her late husband was in fact Jesus. So that was the second coming. (laughs) So maybe the third coming of our saviour would be the thing they were all looking out for. And anyway, they got associated with Joanna Southcott and the prophecies of Joanna Southcott. Now, the Panacea Society, well, one of the things Mabel did was she got enormous bolts of linen and she breathed her holy breath over the linen so it was suffused with her holy breath they were then cut by her disciples into tiny one inch squares and were then dispatched around the world to give their healing properties to anyone who felt the need of them 130,000 of these went out when you received one you put it in a jug of water and then used that water that was water a and you would drink that and then any leftover was water b and you would sponge that onto the afflicted part of your body as to its efficacy, I'm afraid the medical history is incomplete. So well, we don't there's know so about many that. to follow, 130,000. They couldn't really find out what happened to everyone, but I'm sure there was a lot of success. And no charge. They weren't people trying to make a quick buck. They were all people of independent means anyway. And they gradually bought up various properties around Bedford as she gathered disciples to herself. There were about 70 of them at one point, I think in the 1930s, when the society was at its greatest. They also had um, followers from abroad as well. They also rather unfortunately and and very prematurely had a sort of gay section they had a gentleman member who tried to form a gay section and he had to be expelled they were ruthlessly patrolled by uh, Mabel but also by she had a sidekick a disciplinarian called Emily who imposed a very strict discipline on the members of the community but all this kind of leads up to the importance of the box now the box Joanna Southcott's box contains these prophecies which can be opened at Britain's hour of need so there were an enormous 1939 war was declared all right advertisements were placed in all the newspapers by the panacea society calling for those circumstances to be fulfilled which required 24 bishops of the church of england to be present at the opening of the box now never could get 24 bishops together (laughs) of the church there is a story that in 1927 a suffragan bishop of grantham in an unguarded moment, consented to be at the opening of a box, which was open to discover a faulty starting pistol and a lottery ticket. But it's thought that that's not (laughs) the proper box of the prophetess um, Mm. of Joanna Southcott, which still is in the care of the successors of the Panacea Society. Mabel, disappointingly, died 
Now, this was rather upsetting because people thought that she was uh, someone whom would be beyond the uh, corruption of death. So when she died, they kind of tucked her into bed and covered her in blankets to see if she'd be okay. But unfortunately, she wasn't okay. She began to decay. So uh, then they got the undertakers in and she was duly buried. And you think that might have been the end of the Panacea Society. But no, no, it continued and continued and continued. Um, They never were able to get the 24 members of the House of Bishops of the Church of England together to open the box, which is still in the care of the society, the rather there's a charitable trust now. Because do you know when the last member of the Panacea Society died? Probably quite recently. 2012. Oh my goodness. Wow. Ms. She was the last member. There were quite a few members up in the 1970s. I can remember there being members of the Panacea Society in the 1970s. And the box is in the care of the charitable trust. Because rather embarrassingly, over the years, and due to the generous donations of its members, the Panacea Society made rather a lot of money. And at one point, it's been, I mean, it's disputed how much, and the charity commissioners, of course, have a view about this, but at one point it was thought to be have about £30 million in the bank. Some have <laughs> estimated more to 10 or £20 million, but a considerable amount of money. And not very much to spend it on. There's a nice allotment in Albany Road, which is a sort of tribute to the Garden of Eden. And there is number 18 Albany Road, which is the end of Terrace. And this is my favourite fact, which I'd like to share with you, if I may. Mm. That in 2003, the end of Terrace, number 18, known as the Ark, was refurbished for the coming of our Lord. Because it would be nice when Jesus does come back to the other, his second or third incarnation depending, that it would be nice to have somewhere for him to stay. But there was a lively debate which proved rather fractious to the society because they had ample funds to do it up. You know, it's an end of Terry's house in Bedford, but you want to do your best for Jesus, obviously. (laughs) But there was a debate over whether Jesus, being untouched by sin, would need sanitary facilities. Mm. So would Jesus need to undergo the daily processes that the rest of us go through? Would Jesus need to shower? his body being radiant, as we know. So they were undecided about that, but they thought to be on the safe side, in case Jesus had any visitors, if he didn't need it himself, they put in a loo and a shower. So in 2003, some of the funds of the Panacea Society went to put in a nice shower and lavatory at number 18, Albany Road. And there's a museum there, so you can go and visit it. And they've actually preserved Mabel's house exactly as it was. And it's like stepping into the 1920s. She was an interesting person. And as you will not be surprised to hear, she had rather sketchy mental health, in fact. And we were talking, you were talking about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, I was thinking exactly that, Richard. I was thinking, what does this tell us about the 1930s? And Mm -hmm. I mean, I get the Conan Doyle thing that you're referencing there is that you know, the place of the world was in turmoil and people looking for some other truth because the First World War was such carnage, etc. But 1930s, I mean, it, it is down to this one woman's mental health issues. But how did it spread there? I mean, if you're saying, what did you say, 130,000 of these bits of fabric going well, out of the world? adverts in the paper. So people just... They asked for testimonials and people would write back and say, well, I had one of your breaths suffused. Then with water be cured my warts beautifully, thank you. They had a hoarding at Piccadilly Circus saying... 
come on, bishops, summon the bishops, let's open the box, and we will ward off the banditry, was the word they used, that threatened England. The box is still there. The box is still unopened. Nobody knows what's in it. Are they going to open it, do you think? Well, I think under the terms in which it's looked after, then, well, this is what we were talking about last week with the chests of bones in Winchester Cathedral. At the moment, the terms of its care are clear and legally defined. Over time, I imagine that the urgency of those claims or the force of those claims would be harder to press. And it might be as a matter of historical interest be time to open Joanna Southcott's box and see what's there. It reminds me of a story in the news uh, last month, I think it was, of the head of West Point, the American equivalent of Sandhurst, and they had a casket that was meant to be opened. I can't remember if it was 100 years or 200 years after it was sealed. And they did it, had all the news outlets, media watching, and it just had mud inside it. So it can be a bit of an anticlimax. Well, you've <laughs> triggered me, Charles, because I lived for the opening of the Blue Peter time capsule in the year 2000, mm. which I remember when it was put in the earth, actually, when I was a little boy. And then in the year 2000, it arrived. By now, I was a 38-year-old man, but mm. I was so excited, tuned in live to watch the opening of the Blue Peter time capsule, and they just sort of poured out a sort of sludge. Not enough sticky black plastic. Well, to no, hold it I think down. I think the elements got into it. But Joanna Southcott's box is, of course, sort of wrapped up and cool. We know what it yeah. looks like. We just don't know where it is. So and that's how a good question, it. though. Is there a conservation issue there? Is it going to be well, preserved? It should, it should be open. But I think the starting pistol and the lottery ticket are, don't fill you with optimism. Well, it's kind of a bit of a rogue story. <laughs> oh, <it's, laughs> so this is not that's supposed to have nineteen seven. We don't really know. We know uh. that the box only actually came into the ownership of the Panacea Society in 1957. Before then, it had been looked after by disciples, I imagine, of Joanna Southcott, who interestingly, at the age of 64, fell pregnant. And they thought that she was going to give birth to a messiah, but actually, I think it was probably a tumour because she died instead of giving birth. So, but I mean, you know, it's just extraordinary. Suburban Bedford, if, if you've ever been there, I mean, Bedford is a place actually significant in English religious history. Yes, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, because he was a prisoner in in Bedford jail, wasn't he? But there is the Panacea Society, and you can walk down Albany Road today, and you are walking, it is alleged, in the very Garden of Eden itself. I feel like I need to make a pilgrimage to this particular place now. Mm. It makes Dunstable (laughs) east of Eden, I think. It does make you wonder what if they do have that amount of money. Yes. The charity commissioners would require that money to be put to use, I think. So I'm wondering, it would be misleading of me to present myself as the third incarnation of Christ. (laughs) But somebody could do it, couldn't they? Someone's got to do it. And maybe could not only move into 18 Albany Road, Bedford, with its shower and loo, but also perhaps... Spend a few million quid, I don't know. Yeah, new improvements to that. But I'm sure the trustees of the charitable trust have far stricter rules (laughs) about that. (laughs) But a very noble of you to put yourself forward as a possible candidate. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I'm quite fascinated by this. I'm so intrigued. I have to say, (laughs) that's the first one we've had where I literally didn't know it existed. absolutely not. (laughs) You think I made it up, don't you? Well. (laughs) You might do. Maybe we should check. Check afterwards. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
My topic this week is a little bit more practical, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to be talking about rucksacks or backpacks. And I'll give a little bit of context. Now, you mentioned last week at the end that is, as I'm going to get back into this, it's a very Scandinavian, especially Norwegian thing. And I don't think I'd really realised that quite as much. And I have to also blame Charles a little bit for this. I have teased you about it. You have a little bit. And I mean, everyone sort of who knows you know that you're very polite and you know <laughs> decent but you do tease people as well so oh. i normally turn up in the studio with my trusted backpack because i'm carrying so much stuff because you're norwegian cat yeah yes. i've never seen a norwegian without a backpack well richard Precisely. i know this is a reference that might not get to cat because of you know we're 20 years old but you remember kit and the widow oh yeah hundreds of norwegians on the london underground they were a cabaret act and it's all about them these tourists from Norway with their backpacks. Well, there we go. Well, it is a thing. And I hadn't quite realised it. <laughs> I realised it the other week, a few weeks ago, I was back in Norway and I went to a summer party of my publishers and I'd already been to my English publishers summer party. At the Norwegian one, there was a huge pile in a corner of backpacks. Everyone's coming up dressed up in their smart suits and their dresses and everything for cocktails and, and champagne with their backpacks Brilliant. and that did not happen in the English <laughs> one. So that's a practical difference. Yes. The other thing, Kat, why do Norwegians always stick the Norwegian flag on everything? Hats, jumpers, everything. A lot of that comes from the Second World War oh. and that's when that the Norwegian flag really kicked in after the occupation because it was always being misused by the, the Nazi party that occupied Norway and Afterwards, it became a sort of complete symbol Big of thing. our liberation, yeah. essentially. So from that, we were like putting up flag everywhere. Even at school, we had to learn the proportions of, <laughs> of the flag. What are they? I think it's 51215, 51217. Listen to this. So there we go. <laughs> anyway, back to the <laughs> <laughs> on hand. So I obviously wanted to find the origins of the backpack and trying to find Scandinavian links. If you go remember way back to paperclips, we were always taught that the paperclip was a Norwegian invention, and as you might remember, it wasn't quite true. So I wanted to see, because again, we've, we've sort of been told that it's a Norwegian backpack as well. Again, sadly not quite true, oh. <laughs> but nearly. But interestingly, the oldest backpack in the world, how old do you think the oldest backpack in the world is going to be? Oh, it's going to be one of those ancient Persian things. Is it <laughs> 4,000 years ago? I think it's a bog ban, and I think it's 2,000 years ago. Oh, well, the oldest one is 5,300 years old. And um, from my very good friend, Utsi the Iceman, who I oh, think yes. I've worked it before. We've touched on him before, yes. yes. This is a guy who was stuck in permafrost. Yes, yes. with an arrow in his back or yes. something, wasn't he? that's the one. Mm. Uh, found in the Austrian Alps in 1991. Now, he actually had a wooden backpack as part of his kit. So he had a, a sort of wooden frame and it had a sort of hide sack or net that he used to carry things with him. So that's quite a long tradition, it seems, in the Alps as well, sort of more recently using these sort of wooden backpacks. We have uh, looked for them in other places. There's no evidence really, partially probably because they're usually made of organic materials that don't preserve. There's various art in different places like Babylon and places like that. And in Egypt as well, but they're always bags of handheld bags. So there's a whole, you can go down a massive rabbit hole of conspiracy theories on these handbag-like things that pop up in um, carvings all over the, including places like Egypt. And they seem to be the same all over the place. So 
proper sort of ancient aliens. But anyway, that's a bit of a, a distraction here. But we always have to carry things, obviously. It seems like it's a kind of one strap satchel type thing. It goes back much further. People like the Romans in their marching kit had a sort of satchel-like Thing as a part of their marching pack. And if we get to much more recent times, 17th century, haversacks come in. And haversack actually literally means oat sack. It was usually for cavalry troopers' bag for horse food. When I think haversack, I think of a sort of smaller thing, like a sort of drawstring bag, but with straps that you put around your shoulders. Is that right? Yes. So it's a single strap bag worn over one shoulder, oh, essentially, is the, um, what a haversack came to mean. And then you get sort of some really interesting ones you can look at. The haversack in uh, the US Army field gear, for example. They're very specific. They're very set. They've got these wonderful, in the 1800s, late 19th century, where you've got a different compartment, one for a specific meat can, one for your, uh, one compartment for your knife and one for your fork and one for your mm. condiments as well so that you can go to war, but you have to have your condiments with you. And your Actually, that's true. If I think of the Americans of a war and I think of the Unionist troops of the North, I always think of them with a backpack. Yes. Everything rolled up. It the, all looks very efficient. It's a th- would it be rolled up ammunition or a blanket on the top? I think some sort of blanket, isn't it? There must be a sort of... Ra- when you go hiking, Kat, which I know you do yes. like 24-7. <laughs> you're in Norway. My sleep, ideally. And, yeah. and do you do a sort of sleeping mat thing on the top? Yeah, well, at the bottom, really, there's rules about, you know, what goes well, obviously. It's like boonard rules, but for backpacks. Yeah, and what you have to put in what location to keep that weight properly distributed. Would everyone do that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you're doing hiking, you've got to do it properly. Come on, Richard. Well, I've never hiked in my life. (laughs) I've never hiked just to a bus stop. I've never hiked. Well, there we go. Maybe we have to take you on a hike. But <laughs> going from these, um, these sort of haversacks and things to rucksacks hmm. doesn't really happen until about the 19th century. It's the Americans actually developing them, not the Norwegians. So I was a bit disappointed to find out about this. But there is definitely a Norwegian connection because in 1908, somebody called Ole F. Badegons designed a backpack with a wooden frame. So other people had done the backpacks with frames before, but he did a wooden one. A bit like Atsu. Yes, although he didn't know about the original. Yeah. So that was really hugely popular. And in fact, they're sort of one of the worldwide leading suppliers. But one of the most uh, important advertising, I suppose, for that was the polar expeditions in 1911 and the race to the South Pole, because this very recently developed brand actually very cleverly gave rucksacks, not just to Rual Amundsen, the Norwegian candidate for that race. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think... He showed he, off a bit, yeah, didn't Yeah, I mean, well... <laughs> took it a bit seriously. Yeah. But apparently no also, no Scott had Badgun's rucksacks as well, his team's. So, although they're kind of claiming that maybe it was a rucksack that did it, but I don't know if that was quite true. But yeah, so anyway, so 20th century, we've got these Norwegians, but they are they're kind of for military, especially for these quite special circumstances and, and really more common use doesn't happen until much later. And it seems like it's the 1940s in America that children start using backpacks to school. And both in the US and in, in lots of countries in Europe, the, the backpack for school has mm. been a really, really huge thing and certainly are in, in Scandinavia. But I don't think really in England, backpacks weren't really... No, uh, did, my, well, my daughter has one now um, and it's very heavy. No. When you went interrailing? I did have one then, yes. Yeah. I borrowed my sister Jane's. She had taken it around India. Yeah, so that was sort of the backpacking tradition starts in the 50s and 60s and then taking off really from the 70s. So good question. So that was a, a late 70s 
backpack and it was really uncomfortable. It had a sort of metal frame with plastic over it and a canvas feel to it. Very impractical, not waterproof, not substantial enough to sit on if you were in a crowded train. I mean, nothing like it is now where it really all fits and works. I have never owned a backpack. I was I've going to ask you. I've never you? had one. I've never worn one. No, never. Right. I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. Yes. Is that a threat or a promise? <laughs> a bit of both. No, I'm very, but I've got a prolapsed disc, so I'm excused backpacking at the moment. But I mean, mm. I have to say Ragnarok, it's set in the fjords and mountains of Norway. Yes. Ravishingly beautiful. And yes. I thought if I could not have to climb anything and just maybe get, I don't know, a helicopter to the top yeah. and walk around a bit, I'd love it. Yeah, we can do that. That's okay. fine. We can sort that out. And I can, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just run up and join you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. Like anyway. a mountain goat. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I was quite interested when I was researching this in, in this sort of idea of other cultures actually not wanting to use backpacks, being quite negative to them. And I even found a reference to a sort of blog post on LinkedIn by uh, somebody called Julian Borrell, who's written quite a few books on the sort of weird quirks of, of Norwegian culture. But he has actually these 10 guidelines, tips for Norwegians abroad. <laughs> and one of them, number two is on backpacks. And it does actually say, if you're wearing a blazer or a dress, never wear a backpack on top of it, if you're in another country than Norway. And it says, actually, you should refrain from wearing a backpack or anything on your shoulder. It risks associating you with a lower social class and reduce your credibility in front of your collaborators and clients. Oh, that's very interesting. So, <laughs> I've got a theory here. Yeah. Mm. Right. Wheelie luggage, yes. which is the curse of modern life, right? If you're yes. in a busy station or an airport or something, wheelie luggage... And I think, why didn't anyone invent it before? It makes so much sense, doesn't it? To put a pair of wheels on a suitcase means you can wheel around. Well, the reason is, is that it's only fairly recently that lots of people needed to have a suitcase to wheel around because nobody went anywhere. The only people who went anywhere were people who had the means to have somebody else carry their stuff, which is why you had porters at stations, wasn't it? Yes. So the only people who were doing the travelling were the people who never had to carry their own bags anyway it's democracy democratization it's redistribution of wealth has invented that trip hazard the wheelie i'll stop going on about this i've got to think well, about it i tell you what is interesting because of course what kat just said sounds very snobby and weird but it is i mean to have a heavy bag on your shoulder is going to muck up a jacket or a dress isn't it it just is it's going to chafe just saying. Well, <laughs> I would think we're going to get you one for Christmas as well, Charles. <laughs> well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? But when would you... Oh, so we're on the tube. You look at the tube. Everyone is wearing a pack. Everyone yes. is carrying stuff. And you think of the tube in the 1950s and the 60s and maybe a briefcase but mm. and a handbag. But that's it. Why do we carry around so much stuff I now? I tend to use a briefcase and then I also have an old camera bag that I used to have when I was in TV in the 80s and 90s, just because it's reassuring. I've had it for a very long time. Yeah. But I try and carry it. If I do carry it, it's really bizarre. I try and sort of get a thumb under the strap so it doesn't mess up my jacket. Oh. I mean, how ridiculous. I feel absolutely moronic talking about this. <laughs> oh, no, no. I think this is fascinating. <laughs> but it is interesting how these things are cultural because... I think because that backpack and that hiking and that outdoorsness is so entrenched in Scandinavian culture, yes. that is seen as a really almost like a noble thing to do. You should be going up a mountain or to the South Pole or whatever. And so it's always that's why it's acceptable, maybe, because it's it's a cultural thing. Yeah. You do. But I don't like the prescription. I, I, I love the sound of Norway, but there seems to be so many rules. There's a lot of rules. <laughs> I like yes. that, though, Charles. Do you? Like There's a part of me that's like, Mabel Baltrup and wants the world to be 
I love that about Norway. I like the orderliness of Norway. I like the idea that not only do you have a backpack, but you pack your backpack in the right way. What's in your backpack? Well, I'll have to show you the right order of everything and then you'll find out. It's practical stuff. But it's practical, isn't it? Yes. It's actually ways... Of, and I suppose if you live in Norway and you've got a deep fjord and a high mountain and some foul weather, you need this stuff, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, the weather and there's a reasons why it's developed. But do you want to know my favourite fact? Yes, yes, please. Okay, so this one was something I didn't know about. So in 1882, someone called Camille Poirier... How would I pronounce that? P-O-I-R-I-E-R. Poirier. 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 What nationality? Camille French. Canadian French, I think. Camille French Poirier. Yeah. Camille Poirier. I can't do it. I cannot do it. Poirier. 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 Some French bloke. Some French bloke. <laughs> a French Canadian. In 1882, a French Canadian improved the military. <laughs> Would that by any chance be Camille Poirier? <laughs> oh, yes, I think you're right. I think That's remember the, the name, yeah. <laughs> so what he did... <laughs> what did he do, Kat? Yeah, what did he do, Kat? Because I've heard the name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too funny. So what he did was he improved the military backpack by inventing what's called a Duluth pack. And this features something called a tump line. Have you heard of a tump line before? No. It was a head strap that goes oh. on your backpack. So it's secured to the backpack with buckles and it goes across your head to take the load off your shoulders. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. Yes. India. Often that's it. Women in India use that, and then perhaps in other places too. Yes. That's where the load-bearing exactly bit is on the forehead. Yeah. Precisely. So apparently this was used all over the world, and especially in Latin American countries, in Nepal, Sherpas use it as well. And it's a very clever way of taking that load off the back. And it also, it's not on your forehead, it's a bit higher up, so it actually aligns your spine. So you're carrying it a really heavy weight, very sort of straight up. I think my new backpack might <laughs> be turning up with a Can I have one strap. on my, the backpack you're going to give me as a present? I will get that for you, yes. Thank That'd you. be good for your back. Well, That'll fix on, your yeah. back, It Richard. would. Oh, it would realign you. Yes, yeah. oh, exactly. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Finally then, we're going to go on to you, Charles, and you've been looking into the prisoners of the Tower of London. Yeah, I've come across these quite a lot, as we all have, because there's quite a few famous names going to pop up in my contribution today. But what I would say is that, interestingly, the Tower of London was never designed as a prison. It was designed originally by William the Conqueror to intimidate and to let the Anglo-Saxons know they'd been defeated. So he had this tower, what becomes the White Tower, although the White Tower wasn't actually made white till the 1240s. But after conquering England in 1066, within 20 years, he has a, a sort of spine of castles really pulsing with Norman power across England. But the central one is the Tower of London, built on some Roman ruins and standing so you could see it from seven miles away and 15 foot thick walls. Very useful fortress to send a message to the coward people around you. But uh, essentially, it, was, it became a place, a royal palace, very significant royal palace. Uh, traditionally, monarchs would stay there before their coronation. And also a, an armory, a weapons storehouse, as it were. And also the place where the nation's coins, the principal coins of the nation, would be minted. 
But because it was a symbol of power, it eventually became where you put your worst enemies. And in fact, in the basement of the White Tower, the dungeons there, that was where the famous tortures would happen. And on the top, there is still an executioner's block there for when people were dispatched. Although interestingly, uh, between the 11th and 20th century, we reckon only about 22 people were beheaded inside the Tower of London. There's another 120-odd who were dispatched on Tower Hill nearby, many of them very important people. Well, that would be so you could get a crowd? You had a crowd to witness it. The ones who were executed inside the Tower would be, for instance, the two queens of Henry VIII were dispatched in a more private place. Famously, Anne Boleyn was executed by not the executioner of England with his axe, but a man who was famously good at, with his sword from France, who came and tapped her on the shoulder and she turned blindfolded and he did it in a very efficient way. But you have a roll call of particularly Tudor greats, sort of Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, were beheaded on Tower Hill. And all the way through to the last beheading, there was in 1747 when Simon Lord Lovett, known as the Fox, who ended up, I mean, he switched sides a few times, but eventually he was captured after the Battle of Culloden and beheaded there. But I was looking at the, the famous prisoners of the time, and we'll get to the princes of the Tower and that sort of thing. But I really like this man I've, I've actually written about, who's called Rana Flambard, who was a bishop of Durham. Don't know about him. Yeah, so he was a really bad man. He was not really what we call a religious bishop. He was a man of money and power who profited under William Rufus, who Kat mentioned last week as one of her bone chests. But Rana Flambard was an, a big deal under William the Conqueror, but became the central figure under William Rufus. William Rufus was a terrible king in terms of pleasing the church and pleasing the people. When his court went around England, people used to hide their daughters and their money because it was carnage and rape and pillage. And Rana Flambard was seen as the sort of symbol. He was in charge of justice. He was in charge of the exchequer. He was in charge of everything, really. And he was a very bad man. So when... William Rufus was killed and ended up in a mortuary chest in Winchester Cathedral. Henry I came in as the younger brother to become king. And one of the very first things he does to emphasize that there's a new regime in town and they're not going to be corrupt is to put Rana Flambard in the Tower of London. But at this stage, there's no suffering in the Tower of London for a very great man like Flambard. And he's treated as a sort of visiting prince and is looked after extremely well. And he gets used to carousing with his guards. And one day they have an exceptionally large barrel of wine produced. He gets his guards roaringly drunk till they pass out. And then he knows what else is in the barrel, and it's a rope. And he is the very first man to escape from the Tower of London. Unfortunately, his allies on the outside had miscalculated the, the drop and he got quite damaged on the way down. But he did get away to Normandy and ended up mounting an invasion on behalf of Robert Curthose to try and take the throne off his younger brother, Henry I. He is a man who got away, which is that we don't think of people getting out of the Tower of London. It's one of those things. We think when somebody goes through Traitor's Gate or whatever, that that is the end. Well, not always the case. I touched on perhaps the most famous prisoners of the Tower of London, which are the princes in the Tower. Now, we don't really know what happened to them for sure. We do know that, that they must have died. They were two brothers. They were the sons of Edward IV. And when he died in 1483, his elder of the two princes in the Tower becomes 
Edward V, although he's never actually crowned. And at some point in 1483, in the summer of 1483, it seems very likely that both the princes were murdered. And the prime suspect is, you know, qui bono, as the lawyers say, to whose good is this? And it is their uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, who then becomes Richard III, the great Shakespearean villain. And so there is a whole society dedicated to saying it wasn't Rich III, but it's rather hard to get past the prejudice that it was him. Well, you know, Macbeth turns out to be Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> so maybe Richard III, equally trashed by Shakespeare. Well, at some point in the 17th century, in 1674 actually, there were two skeletons of young boys found, and they were assumed to be these two princes, and they were given a, a fitting tomb in uh, Westminster Abbey, designed by Christopher Wren. But there is a possibility they may be Roman because where they were found was near where the Romans buried some of their bodies. So we need Kat to go in and have a look at their teeth plaque. Get that plaque yes. off them. Tell <laughs> us Get it all on the your answers. microscope, Kat. Yeah. So I mentioned how important the Tower of London was as a sort of royal palace. And ironically, just before he married Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII had the apartments done up there to make it spectacular before their marriage. But as their marriage unfolded, she was taken back there in 1536 as a prisoner. And there is a strong theory that she thought she was going to be pardoned. She makes this very brave speech when she arrives at the place of her execution. And the assumption is that Henry VIII's listening to this and he'll be so flattered that he'll come out from behind his curtain and forgive her. Well, that's not to be. That didn't happen at all. She says, I pray God save the king for a gentle nor a more merciful prince was there never. Well, sadly, not quite right. Irony. Yep. And he also had Catherine Howard executed for having various affairs. It's very unfortunate. It looks from this perspective now that she was seduced by a particularly unpleasant charmer called Thomas Culpepper. She was probably only a young lady of 18 when she was executed. And he may have manipulated her into a, a relationship. And she then admitted to having had former lovers. And it then became a heresy after her imprisonment and execution for a, a wife of a monarch to have relationships with other men. But presumably, Charles, if you were the wife of a monarch and you were convicted of having a relationship with other men, that would be treason, wouldn't it? So Treason, you're right. It's not heresy, it's treason. Well, so would a beheading would actually be a merciful... Wouldn't that yes, be a commuted sentence from yes. hanging, drawing and quartering? Yeah, well, for a or woman... burning would, for a woman. For a woman, it would have been burning. So, yes, a beheading was a, was a merciful exit, I suppose. But, goodness, it was tough. But I suppose, you know, we've touched on this in previous episodes. The duty of a monarch at this time was to produce an heir and an heir that people could rally round. And if there was any question over the legitimacy, then, then it led to state-level problems, not marital ones. So I suppose that was the logic behind it. When you go to a Tudor palace, what you notice is that it's lots of small rooms hmm. with kind of corridors and little kind of windows and bits off, hither and thither and staircases. They're like warrens, and you think they are places, instead of kind of great splendid spaces, they're little warrens where people get up to all kinds of things. And listening in as well. Yeah, Everyone's listening to you. And yeah, yeah. It, was, I, it is, you're right. It's quite atmospheric, that description. Um, the one I feel most sad for, Lady Jane Grey, oh. when she is really the victim of Protestant plotters to deny Mary the first the crown. So she's put on the throne. She has no ambitions of her own and then ends up being beheaded. And there's this pathetic scene, which is real, where she's trying to be so brave. She's a teenage girl being sent to the executioner's block, having been a prisoner in the Tower of London 
where she's just trying so hard, but she cannot find the block and she bursts into tears because she's trying to do her bit and have a noble exit. And it, I, I, it's, it's a terribly sad little chapter of history, that. Again, Tudor times are quite sort of gruesome times for the Tower of London prisoners. The future Elizabeth I is kept prisoner there because her sister Mary, when she finally gets the crown after Jane, Lady Jane Grey has been executed, is convinced that Elizabeth, being a Protestant, may be behind a, a plot against her. And Elizabeth gets sent there, and she actually is so reluctant to become a prisoner in the, in the Tower of London that she writes this thing called the Tide Letter. She writes it incredibly slowly because she realises that the daytime tide that day, if she can just eke out the writing letter long enough, she won't be able to get into the Tower of London oh. uh, because it was such a place of terror. And so she eventually gets out because the man who leads the rebellion, which she's thought to be a part of, Thomas Wyatt, takes the blame himself and is executed and, and says she had nothing to do with it. But one of the great Elizabethan figures ends up as a, a quite a frequent visitor to the Tower, and that's Sir Walter Raleigh. He was a great hero of Elizabeth's reign. He helped to disrupt the Spanish Armada. But then he secretly married one of Elizabeth I's ladies-in-waiting, a lady called Bess Throckton. And this was against all the rules because the monarch at that time had various people in her charge, almost in place of a parent. And so this was an abuse of the Queen's hospitality that you secretly got married without permission. And he manages to get his freedom. He flatters Elizabeth by founding the colony of Virginia in America, uh, celebrating the Queen's virginity in the name. He then becomes the bugbear of the Spaniards during the endless wars that Elizabeth has with them. And um, he comes back from Guiana in 1595, inventing that he's seen El Dorado, a place where you can just pull gold out of the topsoil. And everyone's intrigued by that. But he's lying. It obviously did not exist. And then he has a real problem. In 1603, James I becomes king. Swalter Raleigh is thought to be involved in a plot against him. He's still massively anti-Spaniard. James I is trying to make peace with the Spaniards to stop the cost of wars with Spain. And so he's sent for 13 years to the Tower gets away briefly from there, but essentially falls foul of the, the Spaniards again, and James I sacrifices him. And he's executed outside the Tower of London, in fact. But he's quite a sort of peppery individual, Swarter Raleigh. And his final words are to the executioner, because he's taking too long. He goes, strike, man, strike, which he does. And so we end up with a sort of interesting 20th century prisoners. In 1941, Rudolf Hess, the deputy head of the Nazi party who crash lands in England, is held as a, the last uh, state prisoner of the Tower of London. There have been various kings and queens of Scotland and France held there before. And then a rather unfortunate man called Josef Jacobs, who was a First World War German officer, who is dismissed in the Second World War as an officer because he's found to have been involved in a gold counterfeiting operation in Switzerland between the wars, and he's reduced to the ranks. But he finds favour with the Nazi party by offering to become a spy. And he's dropped into England in 1941 with a miniature transmitter, 500 pounds, which was a fortune back then, and a German sausage for sustenance. And he breaks his ankle on the parachute drop and is captured by two farmers. He is kept as a prisoner in the Tower of London and is, uh, we've still got the chair where he's tied to, and he was shot by a firing squad of eight Scots guards, three of whom were given blank bullets, and the other five, they placed a little white card by Jacob's heart, and uh, he was killed instantly by the firing squad. You know, that's the last one to be executed there. 
But we've had all sorts of bizarre people kept there. The Cray twins, who are probably the most famous figures from the London underworld of the 20th century, they Shut were up. sent there. They were they sent were. there for a really bizarre crime of not turning up for national service. The Tower uh, of London. Yeah, they were meant to enlist for the Royal Fusiliers. They didn't turn up, so they were sent just for a few days to the Tower of London. Then we have uh, all sorts of people who you wouldn't really think of there. Uh, but the one I wanted to do is my favourite fact, is the conditions there were so terrible. So I wrote a book a long time ago about the people who killed Charles I, the regicides. And in 1660, they were hunted down and condemned to horrible death. Several of them got away with it on technicalities, but they were in prison for life. They were not executed. And one of them's a man called John Downs, not a famous figure from history, but a really interesting character because at his trial, Charles I refused to plead and eventually the, the chairman of the panel judging him, a man called John Bradshaw, just said, right, well, that's it, you're guilty. And then Charles I said, well, actually, I do want to plead. And he was told, no, too late. And John Downs said, I object. He has to be able to state his case. And that probably saved Downs' life, because even though he went on to sign the death warrant, he had done the decent thing but he regretted it. There was an appalling man who was lieutenant of the tower, a man called Robinson, who basically profited from his position. The men were meant to be given, the prisoners were meant to be given provisions, but he pocketed them and sold them. He charged the wealthier prisoners who still had money huge amounts to have the most basic things going on. And we have one of the regicide's wives saying that she could hear her husband screaming in the night for bread from the city nearby. And I do enjoy Pepys's description of him. He said he was a talking, bragging bufflehead. But Pepys was actually a prisoner in 1679 Peach. for maladministration of the Navy. I knew that. But with Downs, it's so interesting. It was so tough uh, being a prisoner there. I mean, one of the regicides, just down to the very basic details, one of the regicides had dysentery and Robinson wouldn't allow him to use the latrines. And Downs was so distraught after three years as the prisoner that I want to end on for the Tower of London, that he said to Robinson that he would like to be thrust into some hole where you might silently slay me. So we think of these as sort of a normal prison, but they were absolutely brutal places. What would you rather be, Charles, shot in a chair by a firing squad or have someone hack away your neck? Definitely the firing squad, because he did die instantly. Because he had one bullet straight through the heart and the other four were in a quite a neat cluster. Scott's guards crack shots. <laughs> yes, from 10 paces. <laughs> it was in the rifle range. They did it in the rifle range in the Tower of London. So I suppose the lighting and everything was correct. Yeah. What a thought, though. Terrible way to go. I, well, I don't know. I'd quite like to face a firing squad. If, it, if I had to be executed, I think I'd nobly decline... The, what do they put over your face? You know, the, yeah, the blindfold, right? yeah. The blindfold, that's what I mean. And um, maybe just sing Edelweiss, because I can remember the words to that or something. Napoleon's great ally, Marshal Ney, was shot by a firing squad. And I, I believe he was an incredibly handsome man, and he, he instructed them to not mess up his face and gave the instructions. So for... gay. <laughs> <laughs> not the face. Not the face. Oh, nay by name, nay by nature. Okay. <laughs> On that note... <laughs> I think we're going to leave it to our disembodied voice again to find out. We've now got one to Charles, one to me. How fair and democratic is our disembodied voice going to be this time? In my hands, I am holding a box that contains the name of this week's winner. 
Congratulations to Richard. Hooray! Do you I know, I nearly said, after he gave his piece, I was about to say, there's really no point in the other two of us <laughs> speaking because it was I so know, that good. That was very, well, very it good. It was so good. I'm it was really a, good. But I'm just, Panacea Society, not very well known, but it's no. one of the maddest things in England. Brilliant. I think. That's incredible, yeah. actually. Well, that's... one of the reasons I picked it was because I think it's pretty hard to find a subject that neither Charles or Kat has ever heard of. So I think <laughs> bonus <laughs> points for that. But will we, can we do a little rabbit hole detective's trip to Bedford? And oh, I think we should. Walk down oh Albany Road. God, Let's fun. do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, there's a plan. So... That just leaves us with preparing ourselves for next week and sharing our topics with our listeners. Richard, yes. can you please go home and research national anthems? Oh, yes, I'd love to do that. Da-da, Thank da-da. you. And Charles, we'd like to know the history of cutlery, please. Oh, yes. And for me, following on from the Piltdown forgery the other week, I'm going to be looking at famous fakes. Oh, very good. Very good. We've had some brilliant suggestions from our listeners. So thank you, everyone, who's been sending those in They're all suggestions us. that we're doing, aren't they? They're all ones from listeners, I believe. They are, which is great. Because we haven't had an idea in six months. We've been running out of ideas. We need help. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're looking for something else to listen to. And... As you've just heard, we love to get your suggestions, so please do email them to us on rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can also find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I don't see how he can ever finish if he doesn't begin. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.